Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Pander podcast, where birders talk birding. Sometimes, when I talk with a guest for this podcast, it takes me down memory lane and reminds me of some of the really wonderful life experiences that I've had that have come about in large part because I'm a birder. My guest in this episode is Bill Young, a longtime resident and birder of Alexandria, Virginia. After a few years of working as a family doctor, my wife Kay and I found ourselves in a position where both of our careers were really going well from a business standpoint, but getting out of balance. I was a, a family physician in a growing group practice, working both as a full-time family doctor, but also as a managing partner involved in a lot of extra time and administrative work. At the same time, Kay was working from home in her boutique advertising agency. And after having had several years of fairly on-again, off-again schedule that she really enjoyed, won a bigger, bigger new client. And that new client was taking up a really lot of time. It was lucrative and she was loving it, feeling like she was doing some excellent work and really passionate about it. But there came a time when we just couldn't do it anymore. We just had to figure out some way for one of us to back off in our schedules. And because in large part, Kay had backed off as I went through early aspects of my career getting a practice started, uh, I, I was the one who decided to, to back off for a while and, and spend more time uh, with parenting and the family. I looked for and found a like-minded doctor to, to job share with, as a part, and as part of the deal, and part of the, I think, the selling point of getting her to join the practice was that each summer, we could take a month off, and one of us would work full-time for a month, while the other took a month off, and then trade places for a month, so each of us got a full month vacation in the summer. Seemed pretty cool to me. In the first summer, Kay also arranged her schedule to have July off, and we headed for the East Coast to do a U.S. history trip with the kids. Uh, U.S. history on the East Coast, you know, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., pretty cool places to go, but also some pretty go cool birding spots to go. Just, you know, as always, the kids knew if I was going to go on a trip, there's going to be at least some birding involved. And some of the places that Bill mentions uh, about growing up, some of his early birding experiences were some of the same places places I visited on the East Coast trip. Brigantine and Bombay, National, Bombay Hook National Wildlife Refuges were a couple of really fine birding spots we visited on the trip. And one of the memories I, I think of seems for some reason is most memorable is that it was a wickedly hot summer day and we were at Brigantine National Wildlife Refuge and Kay and the kids were just hunkered down in the car with the air conditioning on because Green biting flies were just wicked that day. Uh, and I was out looking for a, a, a seaside sparrow, which was, I found, it was a lifer for me. And I dragged Kay out of the car for a minute to get it uh, while the kids hunkered down inside. But anyway, cool memory, uh, hot memory, I guess. Uh, of course, there were some more pleasant memories of that trip too, but for some and that one stands out to me. Well, Bill has a rich uh, and inspiring birding story, and I hope you enjoy hearing it. Help me welcome Bill Young to the Bird Banner Podcast. Bill, thanks for being on the podcast with me today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you, Ed? I'm doing great. Uh, Bill, I heard about you from a, a listener, I think, who recommended you. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to have somebody from the DC area on the podcast. That could be fun. Uh, but let's begin. Uh, a lot of my listeners are West Coast listeners, but I certainly have people all over the place. Tell me about yourself. Uh, how'd you become a birder? How'd you get into all this stuff? Well, uh, I've been interested in birds since I was very young. Uh, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia and I lived next door to a man named Mr. Richmond, who was a retired chemist. And uh, he and his wife had a, a book of Audubon prints as, as well as a Peterson field guide, both of which I, I used to look through. 
um, I, I spent a lot of time at, at his house. And sometimes uh, he would uh, take me on birding trips to Tinicum in, in Philadelphia, which is now called the John Hines Wildlife Refuge and Brigantine in, in New Jersey, which is now called the Forsyth National Wildlife Refuge and Bombay Hook in Delaware, which is still called Bombay Hook. Uh, I have a, a friend who, um, who works at the National Zoo who talks about gateway birds, uh, species who, who get birds, uh, get people interested in birding. Right. And, um, uh, I didn't have a single gateway bird, uh, but rather thousands of them. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, uh, Mr. Richmond took me to Bombay Hook on a, a clear November day, and we saw thousands of Canada geese and thousands of snow geese, and the sights and sounds of the geese uh, got me hooked on birds. So very cool. So you were lucky to have a mentor when you were young. That's I, I don't know how many people I talked to who uh, one person somehow just you know kind of gathered them in and aimed them in the right direction. So kudos to him and good for you. Yeah. Yeah. He was a very important person in my life. It sounds like it. It sounds like you've just had a, a broad uh, based uh, experience and career in terms of birding and nature. How do you, how do you make enough time to do all of that? Um, well, sometimes I find it. I, um, I, I originally, um, I have a bachelor's degree in economics and I worked for a while as a an economist uh, and in the field of consumer affairs, but I decided to get out of the rat race uh, around the turn of the millennium, and I've not had a job since. Uh, I, uh, I'm a voracious reader, and uh, and the writers who have uh, influenced me the most are, uh, uh, are generalists, people such as Bernard Shaw and Lewis Mumford, both of whom had broad ranges, uh, a broad range of interests, and uh, that's one of the reasons uh, I'm, uh, uh, I've studied birds in so many different contexts. Yeah. Uh, so you, you've uh, done a lot of writing and a lot of videography. Uh, and I, I, uh, but I read on your website that you met Alexander Scotch in the, in the late, uh, late part of the last century. Uh, I, I'm kind of interested in that because my daughter lives in Costa Rica and I got to bird at Los Cosingos Bird Sanctuary there, which I think was, you know, his maybe one of his most famous uh, things was he sort of founded that and sort of the grandfather of Costa Rican birding, really, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, tell me how you knew him and maybe a little some stories about that. Well, um, of all the, the bird and nature writers, um, Dr. Scutch has influenced me the most. Uh, I've collected and read more than 30 of his books. Uh, it's unfortunate that more people are not familiar uh, with his work because He's probably one of the most important ornithologists of the 20th century. Uh, and just as an example, Henry David Thoreau was a naturalist and philosopher who became famous for building a house uh, in a secluded woodland near Walden Pond and staying for 30 months. Dr. Scutch was a naturalist and philosopher who built a, a home in a secluded woodland in Costa Rica and stayed for more than 60 years. Uh, you know, somebody like Arthur Cleveland Bent um, collected material from hundreds of researchers uh, to compile his life histories of North American birds. Dr. Scutch did something similar with uh, uh, Central American birds, but he collected uh, most, uh, uh, much of the field data himself. Uh, he, he was an extraordinary individual and uh, his life is, is a, a model for, uh, for modern environmentalists and animal rights activists. He, he produced um, seven books 
about um, uh, the families uh, about families of birds, and so, some of his most amazing work um, involves his behavioral studies. Uh, his book *Parent Birds and Their Young* um, is a 500-page study of uh, all aspects uh, of mating and breeding behavior of the birds of the world. A related book is *Helpers at Birds' Nests*, which is a worldwide survey of. Uh, non-breeding birds who help breeding birds of the same species. And Dr. Scutch is, is, is credited with being the first to, to report this phenomenon when uh, very early in his career, he observed brown jays helping uh, to, to raise young uh, whom uh, they, they had not produced. Uh, birds asleep um, is a survey of an activity that even the most avid birders rarely observe in the field, uh, let alone compile enough uh, information to, to write a book about it. The Minds of Birds, um, published in 1996, is one of his most controversial works. Um, it presents evidence that the, uh, the mental capacities of birds are, are, uh, are greatly underestimated uh, even though he was a, a famous author, uh, Dr. Sketch had trouble finding a publisher for the book because uh, the scientific community uh, at the time had, had deep prejudices uh, against suggestions that creatures other than humans were, were capable of certain mental processes. But Texas A&M Press uh, eventually published it. The New York Times uh, listed it as one of its best science books of the year. And, and since that book was published, um, Ornithologists have, uh, have discovered that uh, the minds of birds are far more complex than, than was previously thought, vindicating uh, what Dr. Scutch wrote. And, and writers such as Jennifer Ackerman uh, have picked up where Dr. Scutch left off, uh, exploring the uh, complexity of birds' cognitive abilities. But I was fortunate to meet Dr. Scutch uh, at a conference in Costa Rica in 1997, uh, when he was uh, in his early 90s. Uh, I was in the lobby of uh, the conference hotel when I saw Mrs. Scutch at, at the front desk and she seemed to be having some sort of trouble. So I asked if I could help her. And she said that she and Dr. Scutch uh, were supposed to be at a book signing, but they didn't know where it was. And I said uh, the signing was in a building across the, the parking lot and I offered to take them there. And Dr. Scutch was, was sitting in the lobby and he was somewhat frail, so uh, Mrs. Scutch um, asked me to, to take one of his hands while she took the other one. And as we slowly walked, uh, I told him how much his work meant to me and how it encouraged me to become much more interested in bird behavior rather than merely seeing a lot of birds to put on a checklist. And Dr. Scutch said, I'd rather know a few birds well. And the irony of uh, the comment is that uh, he had gotten to know a, a great number of birds better than anyone had ever known them. And he died in 2004, uh, a week shy of his 100th birthday. And in 2018, um, I was back in Costa Rica and I had a chance to visit Los Casingos uh, where, he, where he lived. Uh, Los Casingos is the uh, is Spanish for the fiery billed Aristari. Um, uh, a species in the toucan family. And uh, I saw fiery billed arisaries uh, in the trees near his house. And um, the house had been left uh, pretty much uh, the way it was when Dr. and Mrs. Scutch uh, lived there. I was especially interested uh, in seeing uh, what books were on his shelves. And, oh. uh, 
and also looking at the manual typewriters he used to produce the books that he wrote because at the 1997 conference, uh, I sat at a, a, a table uh, one night at dinner with Dana Gardner, who uh, did the artwork for many of Dr. Sketch's books. And Dana lived in Los Angeles. And he said that Dr. Sketch sometimes asked him to send typewriter ribbons, which required Dana to search secondhand shops down <laughs> for old typewriters. Very cool. Yeah, I've also visited that place. And it is really a cool place. I mean, it's, it's great birding, but there's history and it's gorgeous. And the trails are spectacular and just a really cool place. Yeah, as, as sort of an aside, my uh, my daughter, I said, lives in Costa Rica. And, and uh, uh, it's a little hot where, where she lives <laughs> down closer to the coast. But up by Los Casingos, it's a little higher and it's still plenty warm, but it's not quite as uh, muggy and hot as it is at lower elevations. And boy, if I was going to live in Costa Rica, that would be maybe one of the places I'd look at. Yeah, me too. Uh, so uh, I, I want to uh, get back to uh, the park you work closely with, Monticello Park in Alexandria. Uh, so I got a chance to look at the website. It sounds like it's a fairly small uh, city park, uh, but it's located on a ridge and is pretty birdy. T tell me about that and what's your involvement there? Well, um, Monticello Park is, is one of the best places in, in the Washington, D.C. area to observe migrating songbirds in the spring. Um, as you say, it's, it's a tiny postage stamp park. It's only about six and a quarter acres. Uh, and I'm not trying to put on airs, but it's, uh, uh, the park is located in a neighborhood called Beverly Hills. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, the park has houses on three sides and the street on, on the fourth. And a stream runs uh, the length of the, the, the park uh, from, from uh, and uh, there, there's dirt paths on each side of the stream. And, um, the length of each of these paths is about an eighth of a mile. So to do a complete circuit is, is uh, about a quarter of a mile. As you say, the park is on a, a tree-lined ridge um, surrounded by development and, uh, and uh, the migrating birds land in this small oasis of trees in the park and, and the surrounding neighborhood. And uh, uh, many of the birds uh, uh, come down to bathe in the stream. So birders in the park uh, often get to, uh, to see uh, species uh, at eye level or below, uh, and, and including species who usually stay uh, way up in, in the treetops. And, and because of the bathing birds, it's a good place for beginning birders. Um, I don't have an official role at the park, but I've been going for many years and I I try to help newcomers who, who, who visit. Uh, a few years ago, I, I worked with uh, uh, an elementary school um, at, at a nearby school uh, uh, adjacent to the park. Yeah, so it sounds like you're pretty familiar with it. I, I looked at your website, MP Nature, the, the website you co-founded, I guess, and it has a nice uh, nice description of the park and information about it. That's a pretty uh, <clears throat> pretty ambitious website. Tell me about it and, and how does how how can the birders benefit from it? What, what's its purpose? Well, um, in in past years uh, during the spring migration, um, I, I used to send daily emails uh, about sightings at Monticello Park uh, to a list of birders who, who visited the park. Um, at some point, um, I began to include uh, brief items uh, that, that I thought would, would be of interest to the birders on the list. And I got to know some of the photographers uh, and uh, a few of them offered to let me 
um, include photo, uh, their photos and the emails. And eventually I began to include information about how to uh, identify the, the birds who uh, had been seen at Monticello that day. And many birders uh, on the mailing list uh, forwarded my emails to friends and, uh, and a lot more uh, requested to be added to the list. And in, in 2017, my friend Ashley Bradford, uh, who's an outstanding amateur naturalist and photographer, asked me if I had ever considered collecting and preserving the information for my emails on a website. Um, I didn't know anything about how to create a website at that point, but Ashley is a, a professional visual designer with experience in, in uh, the design and creation of websites. And she offered to do the design and she taught me how to code in HTML, oh. which, which in retrospect, I'm not so thrilled about. But uh, so uh, what started as an idea discussed by Ashley and me, I grew into the website and the focus of the website is to help people understand the entire ecosystem uh, of Monticello Park. The writer Margaret Atwood said that uh, people are, are not likely to, to want to save nature unless they, they first love it. And Ashley and I have added the corollary that people are not likely to love nature uh, until they first understand its various components. The website uh, features accounts for more than uh, 125 bird species. And uh, there's another section uh, with accounts for more than 140 plant species. Um, Ashley is the plant specialist and all the plant photos on the site are hers. Uh, I did all the writing for the bird section and I also did uh, brief accounts um, for the plants. Regarding the birds, um, each uh, species account contains information about um, when the bird is likely to be seen at the park. Uh, for migrant species, we show the early and late spring dates and uh, when the species is most likely to be seen. Um, the site also has information about when, when migrant species uh, are likely to be seen during the fall. Um, there's a, a physical description of each species with a lot of uh, photos showing relevant field marks. Uh, there's a section describing vocalizations uh, and a link so that people can listen to what each species sounds like. Uh, we've included notes uh, featuring relevant facts about the species. Uh, we show the origin of the, the common uh, name and the uh, origin of the genus and scientific species name. And there's also uh, a link so that uh, people can watch uh, video of the birds. The website also has a, a lot of other features. Um, there are daily checklists for each date in April and May um, based on survey data going back to two, uh, 2005. Um, the checklists um, show if a species has been seen on average more than two times, uh, one to two times, and up to one time on each date in April and May. Most, park, uh, most parks ha uh, that have bird checklists show the frequency for a season, but for migrants, that often isn't much help because certain species might typically pass through uh, during only a few weeks in the spring. So seeing that a species is listed as common during the spring might not be of much help unless you know which dates it, it's likely to be there. Um, the website has an essay section um, featuring essays written by me and, and Eric Dinnerstein. 
Eric uh, used to be the chief scientist uh, for, for the, the World Wildlife Fund, and he's incredible. He's incredibly knowledgeable about all aspects of nature. Uh, he writes a, a monthly nature column for a, a, a local newsletter where he lives in Maryland, and he lets us uh, post his columns on the website. I've written essays uh, about a variety of subjects, uh, such as bird migration and various articles about uh, warblers. The website has a library section with resources uh, for, for 15 different categories, including birding apps, resources for young people, the geology of the area, insects and spiders, which is another of Ashley's specialties, trees and plants, and a lot more. So we don't include any advertising, and we've never asked for, for money from uh, the city of Alexandria since we uh, we went online uh, in February of uh, 2018, which gives us a lot more independence. And uh, the response has been extremely positive, uh, both from birders uh, and from the city of Alexandria. And, and the website's also useful for, uh, for people uh, who visit parks other than Monticello. Sure. It, it sounds like a, a inspirational thing for, you know, city parks or, you know, little I don't mean to say little, but, you know, little hotspots here and there, you know, uh, uh, people could uh, take on their own little uh, patch, you know, patch birding sort of thing. So that's really cool. I know you you mentioned you have an interest in bird behavior. I can kind of see where that came from after uh, meeting uh, Dr. Scotch and having some uh, some experience with his writings, which are kind of incredibly detailed and and before their time, obviously, uh, because, uh, you know, now uh, birds are considered pretty darn bright in a lot of ways. Uh, but uh, uh, he was obviously dissed uh, a lot. It's interesting how people get dug in, you know, ornithologists, are, and, but any kind of uh, professors, and they've, they've kind of staked their career on certain beliefs. And boy, when somebody comes along and challenges those, oh, boy back off, you're in trouble. But anyway, uh, tell me, tell me some of your uh, interest and, uh, and writings and teachings on bird behavior. Um, well, perhaps because I used to work as an economist and uh, dealt a lot with statistics, I have very little interest in listing birds because uh, all the record keeping uh, uh, is too much like what I used to do when I had a job. But because of the work of, of Dr. Scotch and other writers, uh, I'm much more interested in trying to understand uh, why birds do what they do. Uh, even um, if I'm in an area that, that doesn't have a lot of wildlife, uh, I usually can, can still observe uh, the, the behavior of birds, uh, even if uh, the only species around are, are pigeons and house sparrows. Uh, one reason I, I'm very interested in bird behavior is that understanding it will be very important um, for addressing issues um, uh, connected to the climate crisis. Uh, for instance, the, the, the European cuckoo um, is, is uh, one of the, the best known birds in Europe, uh, and it has a, a major place in European culture. Hearing that the first cuckoo uh, has been a sign of spring in, in, in many European countries, uh, cuckoo clocks have been around for hundreds of years. Uh, making the familiar sound that echoes the, the vocalization of the bird, uh, even in the US where our cuckoos sound different, but the sound of the cuckoo uh, has become much less common because uh, their numbers uh, in Europe have plummeted. Uh, cuckoos are, are parasitic nesters and, and they lay their eggs in, in the nests of other birds. And they're also uh, migratory birds who, who fly to Europe from, from Africa each spring. And, 
over the millennia, they've um, uh, cuckoos have timed their migration to coincide with uh, the activities of many of their host species, uh, including some who, who don't migrate. And being able to parasitize um, another species usually requires uh, the cuckoo to do certain things at particular stages uh, of, uh, the, the, uh, of the breeding behavior of their host. But uh, some of the hosts are now breeding earlier because the plants are blooming earlier and the insects who eat the plants are coming out earlier and the birds who eat the insects are laying their eggs earlier. So by the time the cuckoos arrive in Europe from Africa, um, they, they might have missed their opportunity to, uh, to be able to lay their eggs uh, in another bird's nest. And understanding the behavior of, of cuckoos and, and their hosts uh, is, um, is very important in trying to figure out ways to address the decline in cuckoos. Uh, in North America, uh, issues involving uh, the early emergence of plants and insects uh, are already uh, affecting uh, migrant bird species uh, who aren't parasitic nesters. And to look at an issue closer to home, um, there's been a lot of controversy about whether white clothing uh, scares birds. Uh, much of this has resulted from uh, an essay Sherry Williamson wrote, uh, which was the basis uh, for the title of the book, Good Birders Don't Wear White. Um, when people at Monticello Park ask me what they should wear, I tell them, wear whatever makes you feel more comfortable, most comfortable, because uh, I've never seen any evidence that clothing color has any effect on birds. But I'm very interested in trying to understand how, uh, how human activities uh, might affect bird behavior. Uh, I found that sudden movements are, are much more likely than, than clothing color to affect the behavior of birds, and in particular, raising a camera or binocular. Uh, because birds seem to be frightened by the, the, sun the sudden reflection off the glass. And that's why you often hear people say that they saw a bird, but it flew just as they were about to take a photo or look at it through their binoculars. But a lot of these issues are, are, are very complicated. And a big mistake that, that many people make is to try to judge bird perception by human standards. Birds can see UV light, um, which humans can't. And so, uh, a human viewing an object uh, might see it very differently than a bird sees it. And one important factor might be the detergent in which the clothing was washed. Um, the US military doesn't care if uniforms worn by their, their personnel are visible to birds, but the military uh, does care if uniforms um, are visible to people using night vision equipment in low light environments. And the Army and Air Force uh, have guidelines stating that uniforms can't be washed in, uh, in uh, detergents containing uh, optical brighteners. Um, if you go on YouTube, uh, you can see videos showing laundry detergent under, uh, under a black light. And a bird night might not be bothered by, by someone wearing white clothing, but someone wearing clothing that's been washed with optical brighteners to a bird uh, might appear to be lit up like a Christmas tree. Is, has anybody studied that with birds? That's pretty fascinating. A couple people have tried to do it, but I haven't seen any uh, uh, detailed studies. But I mean, there have been studies trying, if you go online, you can see uh, uh, 
what a, a, a bird looks like under a black light. Sure. I've seen that sort of thing. And, and I've, I've read about, uh, you know, the uh, bigger spectrum of light, especially UV light seen by birds. They have special, special optical receptors in their eyes that we don't have a third type, you know, so they can see UV light and we can't, I, I kind of knew that, but I, I didn't know about the optical whiteness. I, I didn't even know. I never even heard of an optical whitener before. That's yeah, cool. Optical brighteners. Yeah. Optical and, uh, brightener. Okay. Also, uh, I mean, if you read uh, John Young's book, is uh, no relation to me. Uh, what, uh-huh. the robin, uh, what the robin knows, uh, he talks a lot about what birds sense. And uh, in fact, there's a, uh, an essay that I wrote about it uh, on the website. If you, if okay, you I'll take. A, I'll t- I'll have to take a look at that. I, I read a couple of your essays, but I didn't. That one didn't jump out at me. You've uh, obviously studied bird behavior a lot. Do you have any interesting stories or things you might share about bird behavior? I could think of a couple. Um, the most remarkable bird behavior um, I've ever observed in the field uh, was in 1996. Um, uh, I was with the naturalist and filmmaker Glenn Trelfo uh, in the Lamington National Forest in Australia. And uh, in this uh, rainforest lives a, a small, uh, rare endemic species called the Rufus scrubbird. Uh, who might be related to lyrebirds, it's, it's, it's not clear, but the scrub bird is, is uh, extremely shy and, and, and skulks on the, the forest floor like a mouse. Um, Glenn was the first person to shoot video footage of a Rufus scrub bird, and I had about a five second glimpse of one, which is a longer look than, than most people get uh, of this uh, very elusive bird, but the scrub bird is an expert mimic and uh, even though we couldn't see him, um, we listened to him in the dense understory from about 10 feet away. Uh, and the bird sang a, a broad repertoire of songs uh, of uh, other bird species in the forest. And as we listened, we heard a pair of uh, Eastern whipbirds uh, singing a, a short distance away. Um, the, the male whipbird's song um, is a long whistle followed by a, a, a sound resembling a loud whip crack. I'm not sure I can imitate it very well, but it goes hmm. And um, the female often answers with a two note choo-choo uh, immediately after the male's whip crack. And the remarkable incident um, was that once uh, during the male whip bird's long introductory whistle, um, the scrub bird at our feet supplied the whip crack before the whip bird did. And another time during the male whip bird's long introductory whistle, uh, the scrub bird supplied the female whip bird's two note response before the male whip bird sang the whip crack. Uh, birds sometimes mimic other species, but I had never witnessed or read about one bird mocking other birds by mimicking a portion of their songs while the other birds were, were, were singing. And this involved recognizing the other birds' songs, knowing what came next, and being able to mimic the subsequent part. Um, Another unusual behavior is one uh, I wrote about in a a piece uh, that's in the the current issue of the Journal of Raptor Research. Um, I have a friend named Carol Stalin, who's uh, an outstanding nature photographer. On, On March 6th of last year, uh, she sent me an email entitled Osprey Back in Town. Um, her house is next to the Potomac River, um, and uh, she can see a, a platform with, with an osprey nest uh, 
uh, on it from her uh, from her windows. Um, she attached some photos uh, with the email, and when I saw them, I nearly fell off my chair because the photos showed an osprey with a live crow in its talons, and the osprey then killed the crow and carried it uh, to the nest. Uh, Carol sent me a link to her smug mug site, which had 50 crystal clear photos uh, showing the entire episode. And I told her, I didn't think this behavior had, had ever been photographically documented. 99% uh, of an osprey's diet is, is live fish. So this was highly unusual. Um, I wrote uh, to, to Rob Beauregard, um, who was one of the authors of the uh, Osprey publication in the old Birds of North America series. And mm -hmm. he suggested that I write up the incident for the, uh, the, the Journal of Raptor Research. Uh, I also wrote to John Marsluff, who's out there in the Pacific Northwest with you, uh, uh, who's an expert on crows. Uh, Dr. Marsluff sent me an article um, that he had co-written about crow uh, mobbing behavior uh, mm -hmm. of raptors. And the article said that crows mob bald eagles and red-tailed hawks, but they tend not to expend energy mobbing ospreys because they know ospreys don't pose a threat. And the only exception is if an osprey strays outside uh, its normal territory. Uh, but this osprey was over the river near its nest. Now, it could be that the crow who got nailed uh, hadn't received a memo about not bothering ospreys. But uh, if you Google osprey crow, you, you can probably find a link to uh, the story and to Carol's remarkable photos. Very cool. Uh, makes you think uh, maybe it was getting mobbed and it, uh, yeah, I remember as a kid, people would shoot a crow and hang it up in their cornfield to keep the other crows from coming in. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it said, I'll just take this crow and hang it up on my nest to keep the other crows away. <laughs> I don't know. Oddly enough, I, I was thinking about this um, a couple weeks ago because at Monticello Park, there was an incident of violence. Um, we, about 20 of us were standing in the front of the park and all of a sudden we heard these crows getting louder and louder. And then suddenly a red-tailed hawk with a crow in its talons came about six feet over our heads and dropped the, the, the crows were chasing it. And uh, the, 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 the hawk dropped the crow into the stream and then went to a tree about 20 feet away from us. The crow uh, who had been in the talons flew away and then all the other crows dispersed. But it was, uh, it happened so quickly that nobody got any photographs of it, yeah. but it just, it just happened where a whole bunch of people were standing. I always wondered, you, it seems less common than you'd think that uh, a raptor would take the crows or jays that are mobbing it, because uh, I know the little birds are more agile, but it seems like the crow just flip upside, uh, raptor just flip upside down and grab one of those crows, but it just doesn't happen much, does it? Yeah. You also have a YouTube channel. Uh, I, I, my uh, suggestion is that you put sex in more of the titles of your uh, YouTube channels. The, the, by far the uh, most views was bird sex in the Galapagos. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, tell me about your videography. Perhaps videographer is uh, too strong a word to describe what I do. Uh, um, uh, the videos I post on YouTube, uh, on my YouTube channel have the same purpose as everything else I do. Uh, I, I want to help people better understand the natural world so that uh, 
they'll be more inclined uh, to want to conserve it. Uh, before 2012, uh, I never even owned a camera. Uh, and in March of that year, uh, I, I bought a pocket Panasonic point and shoot camera with, with a, uh, a 20 power zoom. Uh, and uh, I used it to shoot footage of, um, uh, of a video called Gray Girl uh, about a female cardinal at Monticello Park who was gray instead of brown because mm -hmm. uh, she lacked uh, a pigment called pheomelanin. Um, the following year, um, I bought a, a Nikon P510 uh, point and shoot camera with with a 42 power zoom. I, I still use that camera. Um, I, I've shot uh, video footage with it and I've edited it in uh, iMovie on, on my Macintosh computer. I've never taken lessons about photography or making videos and uh, I've learned everything um, either on my own or from friends. As you mentioned, uh, the video that's had the most views uh, is called Bird Sex in the Galapagos. Uh, it's a totally serious video about uh, the reproductive behavior of birds I saw on a, a 2013 trip there. And, and it's had 684,000 views. South of Old Town Alexandria in Virginia is uh, an area along the Potomac River called Bellhaven. And in uh, 2014, uh, a pair of ospreys uh, built a nest on a platform very close to uh, the Bellhaven Marina. And I spent a lot of time shooting footage of the nest and uh, I made two videos uh, which Ashley narrated. Uh, they were called Osprey Love Nest, uh, which described the pair bonding process and then Osprey Love Nest 2, feeding and fledging, uh, which dealt with the, uh, uh, the care of the chicks and the ultimate fledging. And combined those two videos have had uh, uh, more than 140,000 views. Uh, I've made videos, uh, I've made four videos about owls, uh, a couple about penguins, uh, one about shoebills I saw in Uganda, and one about a, a Mississippi kite nest, uh, which was in a tree at a house uh, next to uh, Monticello Park. Um, Mississippi kites are not very common in our area. Uh, they've just uh, we get a, a few pairs every uh, year in the Washington area, but um, I, I spent a lot of time um, observing the kites and, and shooting video of their activities. And uh, if someone stopped a car and asked me what I was looking at in my telescope, uh, I would tell them about the nest and ask them if, if they wanted to look and most would pull over. And, and when they saw the nest, they got really excited. Or if I was there after dinner, uh, when, when people were taking a walk, uh, I would tell them about the nest and ask them to look through the scope. And if they had a small child with them, uh, I'd lower the legs of the scope so that the, the child could look because you never know uh, whether the kites might end up being a, uh, a gateway bird for someone. Yeah, I've, I've always been impressed by uh, birds. Yeah, we all have uh, stories out here when we're do, doing sea watches. A lot of times we'll do sea watches. So people come, are you looking at whales? Are you looking at whales? Is always the question, you know, and some of the birders who just don't want to be bothered say, yep, no whales today. <laughs> but most of us uh, try to say, no, looking at birds, see the cool this or that or whatever. But uh, <laughs> the standard is, nope, no whales. <laughs> So, so you've done a lot of videography. You've traveled quite a bit too. Do you have a couple of favorite places you've been to? It, it's really hard to pick out 
um, one or two places that are my favorites. Uh, I just like being out in nature and observing things. Uh, one of my favorite trips uh, was to Uganda in 2017. Uh, my, my guide was um, a man named Kremi Wanyama, who not only was a superlative guide, but he's, he's also a wonderful person. And I've, I've stayed in touch with him. Places such as the Galapagos and South Georgia Island are special because you can observe birds at very close range. Um, the trip to the Antarctic was a bit of a family affair uh, because uh, the vent guide was Michael O'Brien, who is the son of my first cousin. And Michael's dad was, was uh, and his brother were also on the trip. Um, mm -hmm. Ecuador has uh, a, a remarkable diversity of birds. Uh, I felt very comfortable during my stays in 2017 and 2018 uh, at uh, Rancho Naturalista in, in Costa Rica. Um, in 2018, um, uh, Ashley and, and I uh, spent a week there with a, a wonderful guide named uh, Mercedes Alpazar. And I find that if you go on trips uh, without having a long list of target birds you want to see, uh, you end up having a better time and your guide is much more relaxed and that makes things much more pleasant for everyone. Absolutely. I, I've, I've started a lot of times instead of going on a tour where the focus is race around and get as many species as you can and uh, maybe don't get great looks at them to, you know, trying to find a local guide and, and telling them that, you know, I, I'd like to see a whole lot of birds and see a different, a bunch of different habitats, but I really want to just, you know, get a sample of the local birds, really get to see them well and have some fun. And, and it, it works out better that way, I think. Yeah. What's, what's going forward for you, Bill? Where do, where do you see yourself going? I really haven't made too many plans for the future because everything seems to be happening uh, <laughs> so fast in an unexpected way. I, uh, I used to travel a lot, but I haven't uh, traveled anywhere in, in close to three years and uh, I don't have any travel plans right now. Um, I'm in remission for leukemia. Uh, oh. My immune system is not especially strong and because of COVID, I'm, I'm probably more reluctant to travel than, than most people. Uh, and until I see some indication that COVID is under control, I don't see myself going near an airport or a train station or anyplace else that uh, where there are a lot of uh, large crowds. But uh, I always seem to have more than enough to keep me busy. Uh, there was a stretch between uh, March 29th and April 21st of this year um, when uh, I gave presentations on seven of the 24 evenings with each presentation being different. And it, it takes a lot of time to, uh, to prepare these presentations. And I hadn't asked to do any of them and people asked me to do them. And uh, I, I just don't like to say no, but so I just, I'm pretty much taking things as they come these days. You know, if there's anything this pandemic has, uh, has brought us as a better appreciation of how cool it is to just bird around home and, and do stuff closer to home. So take care of yourself in that regard and, uh, and uh, make the best of a difficult situation. It sounds like you're uh, grabbing it and, uh, and making the best of it for sure. I, I want to uh, wrap up with just making sure people have a chance to know how they can reach out to you. What would be the best way to get a hold of you, Bill, if people want to? Um, the easiest way to reach me is um, through the mpnature.com website. That's MP as in Monticello Park. Um, if you go to the, uh, the pull-down menu that says about on the far right of the page, you'll see um, uh, the bottom item says contact us, and that will allow you to send an email to me. 
Um, the first item um, on the, uh, the same menu says the website. And if you scroll down uh, the about the website page, uh, you'll find links to my YouTube channel, my Flickr photography page, my books and, and my essays. Perfect. So people know how to get you. Use the MP Nature website and you can find a lot of what you do and get right a hold of you if you want to. So, Bill, thanks so much for being on the episode with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me and I hope you had fun. I did. Thanks so much. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast, episode number 130 with Bill Young. His passion and joy of observing bird behavior and his detailed and intimate knowledge of his home birding patch, Monticello Park in Arlington, Virginia are admirable and inspiring. If more people really knew a birding patch as well as he does, there would be some pretty fabulous information coming out about these places, especially if they put up a website to tell everybody about it like he has. Anyway, as always, find more information, links, details on the blog post and the birdbanner.com website. And until next time, thanks for listening. Good birding. Good day. <laughs>